Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen, and Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you, I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father, Jacob D., in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you. Father, you are a God who is holy. You're a God who is righteous. You're a God who is powerful and mighty. All that you do is good. Father, as we come to you, we need you. Every hour of every day, every month of every year, every year of every lifetime, we need you. We need you to continually dig in our hearts and uproot the idols that are, uh, whose roots are deep and go beyond that where we know and understand, Father. It is your Spirit who tills that ground and removes the rocks of doubt and unbelief, the roots of bitterness and selfishness. Father, that the gospel may grow and bear fruit in 30 and 60 and 90-fold. Father, you are the gardener. Father, it's you who prune and you are molding and making us. And Father, you have said, abide in Christ. We confess so often that when we try to find life and vitality and significance and sustainability on our own, we wither. But Father, it is only in the, in the vine where we have life and have it abundantly. Father, I pray today as we are reminded of the essence of the gospel, your call to repent and believe, your call to leave and to follow, that we would continually do it day by day. The gospel is a continual pattern of discipline that guides our hearts and makes us more like Jesus. Father, open our ears to hear and our eyes to see Christ. Father, we especially pray this morning for VBS. Lord, it is you who has brought us here. You have blessed us with so many children as they run and laugh and play. Father, it's so easy that we can just satisfy them and make them happy and give them what they want. But Father, what they need most is Christ to answer the basic fundamental problems of their heart that they are sinners separated from a holy God and there's nothing that they can do to stem that tide to be reconciled to God. They need Jesus. He is their greatest need who he is and what he has done to bring us into fellowship with God, that they may enjoy a life of fellowship with God himself, the joy and the peace that comes from that. May we be faithful this week not to simply entertain and get VBS over with, 
in one piece, but Father, that we would seek to touch their hearts, to point them towards Christ, to show them their need for Christ, and show them the mercy and compassion of God through his work in Christ. Father, we know your spirit goes before us. We know your spirit takes our imperfect words and uses it for your glory. Father, do that this week, we pray. In Christ's precious and holy name, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. If you're not already there, turn into the book of Mark. As we go through, we'll be looking this morning at verses uh, 14 through 20. This picture of who Christ is and what he has done. In 1810, Adoniram Judson felt the Lord's call to bring the gospel to India. That same year, he fell in love with a young lady named Anne Hasseltime and declared his intentions to her as a suitor. Now, in the fashion of those days, uh, Adoniram would have written a letter to and, and asked for her hand from her father. And he wrote these words, and um, this was what he wrote. I have now to ask you whether you consent to part with your daughter early next spring and to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land or subject and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and even perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this? For the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you. And for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and for the glory of God. Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Gentlemen, fathers, if you got a letter like this, what would you do? One of the fathers in the town where Adoniram Judson lived, when he heard this, he said, if Judson came to my house, I would tie my daughter to her bed and wouldn't let her leave. Fortunately, Anne's father didn't do that. He says, I can't make that decision. That's a decision Anne has to, to make. And her wisdom in her maturity and her love for the gospel, she wrote to one of her dear friends, and she says this, I have about to come to the determination to give up all of my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, and go where God in his providence shall see fit to place me. The wisdom 
and the love of the gospel that Anne Judson have is a reminder of the cost it is to follow Jesus. It's a reminder that as we see Christ's call to you and I and Christ's call to the disciples, Jesus is calling you to follow him. And what that means is to surrender every aspect of your life to the authority of his will and trust his wisdom in this life for you. Following Jesus, brothers and sisters, is not a half-hearted, part-time, once-a-week endeavor, but it is a radical surrender of your mind and your body and your will to the Lord of lords and to the King of kings. There is no part-time disciples of Jesus, and there is no exemption in any of your life from the Lordship of Christ. Jesus has priority over everything. And I want you to know as we introduce and as Mark guides us in this picture of who Jesus is, that the gospel call is a call of complete surrender to Christ. The call, gospel call is a call of complete surrender to Christ. Now, before we go into how do we respond to this, how do we surrender ourselves to Jesus, we have to define our terms. We have to be able to understand what is the gospel. And that's where Mark guides us in here in the context of where he is, because we very easily can bring in things that are not, uh, that things that are foreign to the text and place them on Mark. And it's called eisegesis. It's place our meaning on the text. When in reality, we want Mark to speak for himself and Mark to define the terms. And we listen to what he is telling us about Jesus. And we gaze at this portrait of Jesus that Mark is painting before us now. We see the first ver words as Mark is setting the stage for this portrait. He says, now, verse 14, after John was arrested. Mark sets the stage by demonstrating what it means to follow Jesus. The voice that had thundered in the wilderness calling the people of God to prepare their heart for the coming of the great king would have his voice suddenly silenced by the powers of this world. The death of, Mar of John, we Mark doesn't go in detail, and we know from the other gospel witnesses what happens to him. Herod snuffed him out to appease the people in his life. But Mark is foreshadowing, because the reader knows what happened to John, is foreshadowing what the cost of following Jesus, and he is foreshadowing himself what will happen to Jesus by the powers of the forces of this world. Yet try as they may to stop and to silence and suppress the kingdom of God, they are helpless to prevent the power of God, which is now moving in the midst of his creation that the people of God have been waiting generations for to come. God's rescue plan is going into effect with the preaching of the gospel. But what is the gospel of God? When you hear the gospel, what does that word mean? Well, William Tyndale, the, the famous uh, 
uh, theologian who transferred, uh, translated the Bible into English for the first time says this, this Greek word, evangelon, which we call the gospel, is a Greek word signifying good and merry and glad and joyful news. Uh, the one commentator said the kind of news is that when you hear it on the phone, you shout for joy. It's the joyful news that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. Why do we celebrate the gospel? Why should we leap and dance for joy? I know some of you, are, or all of us, are Baptists, and you know, dancing is a little, you know, that, but you should dance for leap and, and joy because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the question is, what is the gospel? Why are we celebrating? Why are we dancing? Is it because the vulnerable and the poor and the downtrodden are protected and lifted up? Is it because we have feeding the poor and clothing the naked? Is it because God's justice is, being, uh, is going to the exploited and to the abused? Is it because the offer of salvation has been brought to the spiritual loss? Is it the experience of God's joy and love and peace? Is it the understanding of truth and doctrine? The answer actually is none of the above. I know some of you are thinking, wait, what? What happened there? All of those are implications of the gospel. All of those are outworkings of the gospel, but they are not the gospel. Believe me, Jesus, is the, when he says the gospel is not timeless spiritual truth, but is the proclamation of a significant event. Something has happened. And Mark is about to show us in his writings that the promises of God are about to be fulfilled. The kingdom of God was about to break into the present kingdoms. God was coming to his people to lead them out of the captivity of sin that had separated them from their God and to lead them back into fellowship with him. And how would he do this? He would do this in Jesus who Jesus is and what he has done. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is not what we do. It's not what we experience. The gospel is what God has done in Christ. Let me say that again because we very easily can forget that. The gospel is not what we do. The gospel is not what we experience. The gospel is what God has done in Christ. Remind yourself of that. Notice as it continues, the first recorded words of Jesus, the first words of God after 400 years of silence. The time is fulfilled, verse 14. The kingdom of God is at hand. Up to this point, every promise that was made from Eve to Abraham, David to Isaiah, Isaiah is now coming to pass in Jesus. This is the very thing that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1.20. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why through Jesus we utter our amens to God for his glory. The gospel is telling us that the dark night of sin is over. 
God has answered the cries of his people. He has rent the heavens and he has come down. The kingdom of God is near and it's about to foreclose on the bankrupt kingdoms of this world. God is bringing his people back into fellowship and relationship with him. So we know the gospel is not just a path to moral living. The gospel is not steps to a better life. The gospel is not a way to find community. The gospel is not get out of a hell, a hell free card that we put in our back pocket just so we can do what we want, so we can say, I'm good. The gospel is not a means to healing or a means to enlightenment. And the gospel is not a manifesto of social transformation. The gospel is the good news that through the, work with Je- that through the work of Jesus, we can live in peace and relationship with God. The gospel is an event that we proclaim and that we trust. It is the good news that God has relentlessly pursued a rebellious human beings to reconcile them through himself, through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, that so that we can have peace with God. The gospel is not what I do for God, but what God in Christ has done for me. You have to, have to, have to, have to, one more time, have to, for emphasis, remember that. The gospel is not what I do for God, it's what God through Christ has done for me. Through Christ, I can have what I most need and what I least deserve, and that's very good news. I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I quite frankly didn't want it. But through Christ, he has enabled me to come back into fellowship with God and I can have peace with God. I can have eternal joy because I know God. Everything else pales in comparisons. All the lesser joys that Keller says talked about are pale in comparison to the greatest joy that we have because of Christ and the gospel, which is a relationship with God. But how do we respond? How do we respond to this declaration of what God has done in Christ? The response to that is this, to repent and believe, to repent and believe, and then to leave and to follow. Repent and believe and to leave and follow because the call of the the gospel call is a call to complete surrender to Christ. Ocean Park, if God has worked decisively in the course of history and he has fulfilled his promises and brought salvation to his people, there must be a proper response that he demands. Just as in the Old Testament, we see the work of God. I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is what I have done. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. The work of God, our response to the work of God. The gospel is the good news, what God has done in Christ. Therefore, this is how I respond. This is how I live. I repent, I believe, I leave, I follow. So let's break that down a little bit. Notice at the end of verse 15, repent and believe in the gospel. 
The word repent is, again, baggage that we have through 2,000 years have heaped upon it, and we have to try to scrape away that, that residue of culture and religion and bad theology and get back to the beauty of Christ and what he's actually calling us to do. It's to repent of something is to turn away from something. You see the vanity, you see the emptiness and the sinful of an action, of a desire and a motivation, and you turn away from it. Now, to be able to understand what repentance is, we need to define first what repentance is not. Repentance is not a self-righteous reprimand. And when, often when I think of repentance, one, I think of a biblical definition, but also comes to my mind a picture like this. Repent or perish. Sometimes in a van down by the river, there's a big sign that says repent, and a guy in a bullhorn with a nasty, self-righteous attitude who harangues the people and says, if you don't live the way I live or follow my standard, you're going to go to hell. And that's all they say is repent, repent. Do, stop doing that. And a lot of times what they're crying out against is a bad thing. But really, often we think repentance is be like me when we decry it on somebody else. Be like me or God will punish you. Another thing that repentance is not is self-improving religion. I am sorry for my sin and of the bad consequences and the really the mess I have made of my life. And I'm going to attempt to fix that by creating a long list of things that I am going to avoid so that God will be happy and he will continue to bless me. And if I repent of these bad things, the good things will keep coming. You know what that's called? That's called using God. That's called manipulating God. How many of you like to be used to get something? Maybe a coworker, maybe a family member. You know they're using you for your money, for your talent, for, your, for whatever. How does it make you feel? It makes you feel mad. God hates self-improving religion. Third thing that repentance is not is self-condemning despair. You try to fix your faults and your failures by working harder and doing more to make up for the bad things that you've done. And then what happens? You fall back time and time again. I did it again. I did it again. I can't believe I'm doing it. I hate this, but I keep doing it. Because what you're trying to do is pull yourself up by the bootstraps and work harder. Mark Twain really nailed it in his book, Huck Finn. Now, Mark Twain was um, agnostic and he had biting criticisms of religion. And they were hilarious, uh, the way he wrote. And often it would be like, ooh, that hurts. Talked about in Huck Finn, Huck's dad, Pa Finn, was uh, a drunk. And um, he got himself into some trouble, and the local judge, Judge Thatcher, Becky's father, um, said, I'm going to fix him. And so he uh, and it said here, the, the, uh, Twain writes, the old drunk cried and cried when Judge Thatcher talked to him about temperance and such things. Huck's dad said he'd been a fool and was turning over a new leaf, and everybody hugged him and cried and said it was the holiest time that they can ever remember. And a few sentences later, it says that night he got drunker than he had ever been before. See, repentance is not adhering and adopting a new standard. It's not changing your behavior. It's not increasing your more willpower. 
Repentance is not produced by tears and by empty promises, remorse and regret. Repentance is renouncing your allegiance to the values and the priorities and the loyalties of this world. Where do I get that? Notice the context of what Mark is saying. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe. Mark is presenting us, and we'll see that this is the kingdom of God, and there's all of these rival kingdoms that are working and fighting against him. The kingdoms of the flesh, the kingdoms of self-religions, of the Pharisees and self-righteousness, the kingdoms of Satan and the demons. All of these kingdoms are working, and even the kingdoms of the the Roman Empire, the the kingdoms of government of man. These are all in opposition. And this power of God now in Christ is coming in their midst. And it like a mole under the ground, it is coming and it's undercutting them. And it's about to explode and grow so that all it would be the greatest tree that, that started as a mustard seed. But Jesus is a king who not only will win in the end, but he will bring the powers of sin and death to their knees. He will cast out demons in this chapter coming up. He will heal diseases and he will raise the dead. He will cast out, uh, or I already said that, but he'll do that, cast out demons. He will multiply bread and fish and he will say to the winds, hush, peace, be still, and they will grow immediately silent because of the power of God that is working through the kingdom where Christ is king. And he is declaring the kingdom of God will prevail and all who oppose it will stumble and fall. Therefore, to answer the call of the gospel is to humble yourself before King Jesus by renouncing every rival, every false king, every false god, every selfish time that we put ourselves on our own throne that vies for our allegiance and say, I renounce my allegiance to those kingdoms and I come under the lordship of Jesus Christ for the mighty king who is coming. I repent of my self-independence, my self-love, and my self-centered living. When we follow Jesus, we, uh, the lordship of Jesus' kingdom, we renounce our lust for power, our striving for approval, our yearning for comfort, our need for control. All those things that Keller says are idolatries. They are false kings from false kingdoms. And we say, I renounce my loyalty to those. I repent of those and I follow Jesus. And that's where repent, turn, say no, and believe. Say yes to a greater joy, a greater promise, a greater love that we have in Jesus. I have peace with God through Christ. Therefore, I don't need to fight for power because I am safe under the care of Christ my King. I don't need to work for man's approval because I am accepted on the basis of Christ's completed work before God. I don't yearn for constant comfort because Christ is working all things for His glory, including my suffering and my pain. I don't need to be in control because I trust Christ, my King, who is seated on the throne and he knows what he's doing. 
Biblical repentance is the inner change of a heart that trusts in Christ, who He is, and what He has done. We remove the values and the behaviors and the thinkings of the kingdoms and the powers of this world, and we submit to the values and the behaviors and the thinking of Christ our King. That takes time. That takes a complete rewiring of our minds and our hearts and our appetites. When we believe the gospel, we are pledging allegiance to Christ, our King, and to His kingdom alone. Ocean Park, have you humbled yourself in repentance? Do you trust the work of God in Christ? Or are you irreligiously claiming your own sovereignty in defiance of Christ the King? I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I will not bend the knee, as Sinatra says, I'll do it my way. Are you attempting to use religion and good works to secure God's blessing for your own kingdom? God will give me what I want if I'm good. He'll bless me. If I say the right words, if I give the right amount, if I sow the seed, if I name it and claim it, the very thing that we see in American gospel on Sunday evenings. I can use God and religion to get the, what I really want, and that's the carnal desires of my heart. Health, wealth, and prosperity, and Jesus is my ticket. The gospel says... And Jesus declares, you cannot know the good news of the gospel unless you renounce your allegiance to the kingdoms of this world, to your own kingdom, to your own throne, and trust the work of God in Christ. Therefore, you must humble yourself in repentance and trust Christ today and every day. Martin Luther, in 1517... 502 years ago, this October, nailed the 95 Thesis to the, the, the church door in Wittenberg, and it altered the course of human history. His first uh, thesis, his first thing for his debate was this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now, often we think when we see the guy with the sandwich shop sign that says repent, we think of the altar call, we think of the, the respond to the gospel, we think of the uh, time and when we share the gospel, when we call them to believe, we say repent, and we think that you do it once you're done. But following Jesus means repentance and faith, repentance and belief, is a daily occurrence. It starts one time, that first time, the hour I first believe, as the hymn writer says, and it happens every hour of every day of every day of your life after that. Following Jesus means, why? Because we naturally drift towards self-reliance and self-centeredness and self-fulfillment. Talked about it in Sunday school. 
Why is that one little area of our life that we hold close to our vest and we say, Jesus, I got this. You take care of the rest. You got 98% of my life except this little wee spot over here. I'll handle this. We believe and often we believe the lies of the world and trust the empty promises of the kingdoms that want to undercut Christ as the Satan as Satan said in the garden did God really say sowing seeds of discontent and uh, uh, disbelief to Eve we need repentance every day because to renounce every attempt to seize control of our life and submit to the wisdom and love of Christ our King. We need to repent and believe every day because to lay aside our own glory that we may live for the glory of Christ, the one true King. Repentance and belief must happen every day. It's not a one-time thing. It's a continual work until we stand before Christ and He glorifies us and makes us whole and the presence of sin is wiped away. Brothers and sisters, the gospel call is a call to complete surrender to Christ. We surrender by repenting and believing. We also surrender by leaving and following. Verses 16 through 20, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. Jesus saw Simon and Andrew and the brother of Simon, Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who was in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants who followed him. The question that often you think is, who could demand such immediate obedience who has the audacity to demand authority over a person's career and a person's family the answer is Jesus Christ the King of Kings and Lord of Lords he alone too many people sit in our pews our pews and other pews Honestly believing that following Jesus means I occasionally attend worship. I fill out a pledge card every once in a while. I attend occasional Bible study when I have nothing else to do. I will help out with the needs of the church from time to time. I'll throw a 20 in the plate. I'll come and you know pull some weeds, whatever. Mark is about to shatter those assumptions. Because he is showing us that following Jesus is not being an eavesdropper on Jesus or onlooker on Jesus. Following Jesus means that you leave everything behind and you follow him. Notice verse 18. Immediately. Remember, 42 times the word immediately is in the book of Mark. That's not accidental. That's not bad writing. That's intentional because he's showing the, the, the urgency and the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now again, we want to jump into the shoes or the boat of uh, Peter, James, and John and, and um, 
Andrew. But we don't know little, we know zero about them. Mark gives us nothing. And he does it on purpose. He doesn't give us their psychological motivation. He doesn't give them their internal struggle. Hmm, should I do this? Can we afford this? What's my dad going to do? What are these hired workers going to do if we leave the job? Are they going to have job? How are they going to feed their families? What am I going to do? I don't have anything to wear. Where are going to walking? I have no idea who this guy is. Have we done a background check on this guy? Well, immediately. We have no idea what their pros and cons list was. We have no indication of how much Jesus uh, they had been exposed to because the other gospel writers do tell us they heard the Jesus teaching. This is not their first time they had ever seen them. But Mark is showing us that when Jesus beckoned Peter and Andrew and James and John, to their, they left their boats, they left their nets, they left their families and they left their careers immediately to follow him because he had the authority over all those things. And Jesus gives the illustration of what it means to follow him at the end of 17. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to make you shepherds. Paul uses that illustration well in other places. And you're not going to be gatherers. He says you're going to be fishermen. Now, immediately when we think of fishing, I think of Andrew standing in our pond behind our house, fishing and pulling in bass and holding it up, taking a picture and throwing it back. And Crosby being all excited. I think of Spencer going down and reeling them in. And, and uh, you know he's already caught 15 of them, so he's got to start throwing some back. This is not catch and release. This is the net that is thrown out, that is tied down by rocks, that scoops these fish out, and it pulls them in, and it has fatal consequences for the fish, because life and, and for the fish, life cannot go on like it did before. The bass that Andrew's caught four or five times in our pond, for a couple seconds, he's like, man. And then he goes back into the, the way he keeps swimming in circles in our pond. But brothers and sisters, Jesus uses the illustration of fishermen because when a person is caught in the net of grace, their life will never be the same. Following Jesus is not a half-hearted acceptance of of Jesus' kingdom. It is a wholehearted surrender of life as you know it to the king who has all the authority of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus is not asking for your votes. Jesus is not trying to stamp your passport to heaven. Jesus is not looking for your endorsement. Jesus is not asking you to subscribe to his podcast, his YouTube channel, or to like his page. The kingdom of God has invaded human history and it is calling you to submit in willful to surrender to his demands and all of your mind, your body, your soul, and your strength, all of you. No exception. Following Jesus means that life as you once knew it no longer exists. And for many of you, and those of you who know the gospel, a hearty amen goes from your lips. 
Following Jesus means your work and your business change. Following Jesus means your rest and your retirement change. Following Jesus means your play and your vacations are changed. Your thinking and your attitudes, your speech and your expressions, your entertainment and your leisure, your time and your money, your body and your mind, your education and your achievements, how you use your iPhone or your Android, how you use Spotify and Netflix, Instagram and Facebook, they change under the authority of the king king of all the universe, Jesus Christ. You are no longer in control of your life because Jesus, the conquering king, has accomplished a benevolent takeover of the throne room of your heart. And following Jesus means you immediately surrender authority to every aspect of your life. The autonomy that you have over your life dies then. And every day you put it to death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian in World War II who wrote The Cost of Discipleship says this, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every, every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, the old kingdom, the old throne, the old sovereignty, which is the result of his encounter with Jesus when Jesus says, follow me. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. As we say, I've died with Christ, and no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We give our lives to death. Thus it begins, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it is the means at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Maybe a death like his first disciples had when they leave home and work to follow him. Or maybe a death like Luther who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is all the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. When Peter and Andrew, James and John left the boats, they left their father. They surrender every aspect of their life to Christ. Now, there's notes. We know they didn't give up the business. They didn't give rid of their nets and boats. They went back. But Jesus had authority. He had preeminence. They fished different. They loved their father different. Their wives, their children, they ran their businesses and their careers different because Christ was their authority, not them anymore. You cannot follow Jesus until you surrender every, control, every aspect of your life to Christ. You leave the right to determine your fate and maintain control like Adoniram and Ann Judson. He is your master with sole authority of your life, not you anymore. He is your captain who determines your course, not you anymore. He is your king who alone receives your service, not your former kingdom. The call to Jesus, follow Jesus, quite frankly, in the eyes of the world is foolishness. It's unreasonable, it's scandalous to demand of somebody leave all this stuff. What is he, what a crackpot he is. 
But Jesus says it is not a natural response to surrender. The promises of the gospel is this. That which Jesus demands of his people, Jesus imparts the ability to do so. We are able to die to ourselves because Christ and his spirit enables us to accomplish what otherwise would not be possible. St. Augustine says it like this, Lord, command what you will. You can do whatever you command, anything you want, and give me the power to fulfill that command. When Patton, George Patton, not the general, the missionary, said I wanted to go to the missionaries and to bring Christ to the cannibals, the elder of his church said, you're crazy, they'll eat you. He said, I'd rather be eaten than die than eaten by worms after a long life. I'd rather be eaten by cannibals telling them the glory of heavens. That takes courage and determination to trust that Christ is able to do in you what you cannot do yourself. It's the very thing Psalms talks about. For he, God spoke and it came to be. The power of the voice of God. He commanded and his commands stood firm. Mark is introducing us to the transforming power of the voice of Christ the King, the voice that will say to unclean spirits, be quiet, come out of him, and immediately those spirits are cast out. The voice that will say to the raging seas, quiet, be still, and immediately the storm will cease. The, the, the voice that says to the dead little girl, I tell you, arise, and immediately the dead are risen. The voice that said to deaf ears, be open, immediately those ears are open to the sound of the voice of Jesus. The voice that cried loudly on the cross and the, uh, the, the, the veil in the temple torn in two. Brothers and sisters, Ocean Park, the kingdom of God is in our midst. The voice of Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the very Son of God is calling you to follow him. And there will be pain. There's, it's painful to leave the throne of your kingdom to follow Jesus. There will be a tearing apart from the fleeting pleasures of this world that will not be comfortable. It will be difficult to not do what everyone else is doing to seek to honor Christ. It's painful to surrender yourself unconditionally to Christ because you don't know what's coming. Like Andy said in, in Sunday school this morning, I like to know what's happening and it's hard not to know what the Lord is doing. That's painful. But we have a king that we can trust. A king who the gospel says is leading us into a relationship with something that is much greater, that is far sweeter, that is more valuable than anything in this world, sweeter than the honeycomb, and that is peace with God a relationship with God, the sustaining presence of our Almighty Father who we have been created to find our satisfaction in Him. Ocean Park, Jesus is calling you to follow Him today. Will you heed His call?
His call to repent, to renounce the allegiance of your former life and your former kingdom and the kingdoms of this world and the idols of your heart. Will you believe by trusting in the promises of the gospel that say the work of Jesus brings us into peace with God? Will you leave? Will you let go of the things and the rival kingdoms that vie for your affections and seek the treasures in Christ? Will you follow? Will you seek the eternal satisfaction that God alone can give that we only have through Christ? Will you heed the call? For the gospel call is a call of complete surrender to Christ. Ann Judson left. And she went with her husband to India. And then eventually the Lord opened doors in Burma. While she was bringing the gospel to the heathen that they may know the truth that Christ has come, that God has worked through Christ, she had three pregnancies. Her first pregnancy ended in a late-term miscarriage on the boat between India and Burma. Her second child, Roger, was born in 1815. Eight months later, she buried him in foreign soils. Her third child, Maria, lived only six months after Anne herself died in 1826 of smallpox. Adoniram Judson stayed, her husband stayed, and lost another wife. And he buried six of his 13 children on the mission field. Together they suffered incredible trials while serving as missionaries. But the words of Anne's journal remind us the reason why they suffered hardship and that they died was for the sake of him who left his heavenly throne to bring us back into right relationship with God. The gospel is the proclamation of an event that Christ left his glorious throne to work and to live and to die and to rise again to bring us back into relationship with him. Anne left, Anne and Adoniram left their homes and their family for the spread of the gospel to an unreached people who had never heard the name of Jesus before. Ultimately, their sacrifice paid dividends, but not for the first 12 years. For the first 12 years, they only had 18 converts. When Adoniram, though, when he died in 1850, he left behind 100 churches and over 8,000 believers. He wrote a complete full grammar of the Burmese language, and he translated all of the Old Testament and New Testament into the language of the people, which is still in use today. Today in Burma, in Southeast Asia, there is a stronghold of faith in the gospel, an outpost of Christ the King, where 2.5 million believers in Burma live, that they have heard the voice of Jesus say, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Because Anne, her husband Adoniram, submitted all of their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ to proclaim and be fishers of men that they would know that Christ has come. Brothers and sisters, the gospel call is a call to complete surrender to Christ.